Before we get started, three times a week, the right time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, we have a community of friends, including Dominic Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's the right time with Bomani Jones Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And Wednesdays and Fridays podcasts are also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Welcome to a brand new episode of DC and RC. As you guys can see, my boy Ryan Clark is not with us today. He still lives in Louisiana in the boondocks and his Wi-Fi isn't working. So anytime it rains, Ryan Clark doesn't get internet. Ryan, you're rich. Get better internet, my friend. Now, guys, last week, Ryan and I were talking about Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makashev. I brought up that if Islam were to lose... Maybe it would draw Habib back into fighting, right? Just trying to drop that little sprinkle to see if maybe dude has any interest after being away for as long as he's been away. Well, Habib had Eagle FC last weekend. Our Brett Okamoto had a chance to speak with him. And when he was told of what we were talking about, this is what he had to say. This shit like play game, always. <laughs> this guy always play game. Even in MMA, he play game. Now he finished, he play golf. We call it game, you know. Now he play game with me, you know, everywhere, all the time. I don't know how I'm gonna feel if someone beat Islam, you know. If he beat Islam, of course I'm gonna feel bad, you know. Of course I'm gonna feel bad, but it's no way like people can talk about like Habib gonna come back, you know. Please leave me alone. All right, I'm gonna clip that "leave me alone" part. I'm gonna send it straight to DC. Yes, yeah, send him, please. Please send it. <laughs> This guy, this guy talk all the always trash about like Habib come back, Habib come back. You know, Habib said leave him alone. The last person he told to leave him alone was Tony Ferguson. But it's hard to leave it alone when there are just so many different storylines involved with this Olivera Makashev with the hope that maybe Habib comes back. But the reality is Habib is happily retired. He's doing tremendously well. His Eagle FC event last weekend was a massive success. And honestly, if we really look at the, the betting lines, Islam's a massive favorite over Charles Oliveira if scheduled to fight. So I don't know if my pipe dream is even a thing because of the way that the line looks. But guys, outside of that, and as we move forward without my man Ryan Clark, we got to get back to last weekend. So on this show, Laura Sanko is going to join the show. We're going to talk about the fights last weekend, the controversial decision that Ketlin Vieira got over Holly Holm. We're going to talk about the judging. We're going to talk about Laura's outfit. We're going to step fly, even though Ryan Clark's not here to judge those nice outfits that we saw. And then we're going to rank the UFC's top weight classes from the strongest to the weakest of the five weights that we decide to, uh, to rank. But before we can rank weight classes, we got to go back to last weekend. And this is what Laura Senko had to say after the fights. Regarding the judging for Home Vieira, I had it 135 for Holly. I have taken Mark Goddard's online judging course and spent an hour on the phone yesterday with John McCarthy, who helped to write the original and updated criteria. And all I can say is, tweet number two, there's a chasm of misunderstanding between how the judges are taught, whether you agree with it or not, to interpret the criteria, what takes precedent, and in what order and to what degree, and the general public's understanding of the rules. All the way to tweet number three, because Laura has a ton to say. And she went on to say that we as commentators can do more and we can understand better. So 
for Laura's opinion, we didn't even bother to show tweet number three because Laura's <laughs> just kind of going and going and going. It's time for one round with Laura Senko. Laura, how you doing? Thank you for joining the show. And uh, it's good to have you here. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I was obviously listening to your talk about Habib before. And I could not help but hear in my mind that Britney Spears meme, leave Habib alone. Yeah. Leave Habib <laughs> Everybody- alone. Why do you need <laughs> need more? <laughs> I mean, we will not let this guy off the hook. No, Laura. No. and yeah. Here's the thing. <laughs> We all left the Apex last weekend, and you felt very strongly that Holly Holm had gotten screwed to the point that I went and made a video. But then when starting to pay attention to it and looking at the judging criteria and someone actually sending me some of the information about judging, you start to look at that third round, which is essentially what determined the fight, and you start to go, well, it wasn't as clear as I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And you nailed it on the head. The third round is the swing round. And I want to start with this. We have this tendency as MMA fans, and I I am both a fan and a broadcaster and a former participant in the sport. So it's like I, I wear different hats when I come and talk about these things. But we as fans in particular have this tendency to broad stroke the judges suck. You know, the judges are terrible. The reality is that in last night's main event, and we can have discussions about bad judging, but the reality is that in last night's main event, there were a possibility of 15 scores. Three judges, five rounds. That's Mm -hmm. 15 scores. 14 out of the 15 scores matched. That is good judging. Mm -hmm. And after re-watching the fight twice and re-watching that third round mm. three times and literally dissecting it minute by minute by minute and talking not only to Mark Goddard and to Big John and also to Sean Sheehan, which I did after I tweeted those things out, here's the answer. There is no right answer, and we hate that. Mm. We want there to be a definitive winner mm. or loser, and you got your mm. hand up. You're like, stop mm. talking, lady. Hey, pause. Hey, pause. 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 Let me get a fun. word in. Let me get a word in. Let me get a word in. The reality is this, Laura Sanko, and I will tell you this. I still, after watching it again, thought that Holly Holm won. Now, I understand I that the judging was updated back in 2017, I think. But when I look back to my career, right, and I look back to the situation that I was in, And I'm in the clinch, and I'm controlling from the clinch. I'm winning fights, shutting them out. Essentially, it's telling me, right, if judging is determined by the impact and the damage, especially if over all that time, damage outweighs control. This is what has come to my understanding. Damage outweighs control. There wasn't much damage. There were some damaging strikes. But how do you value all that control opposed to getting hit with a big right hand to start the round? Or a nice uppercut to start the round. I fought Alexander Gustafson in round four. I beat him the whole round. He dropped me at the very end. But because of all the work I had done prior, I still won the round. They didn't overvalue that one instance in which I went down. But if these judges from last weekend were judging that fight, you would have had a new champion. So I think that to make it singular is where the mistake lies. Because if you can't go damage, control, octagon control, all this other stuff. It needs to be a little bit more than just having a single idea of damage when there isn't much damage being done and then you're getting controlled for the vast majority of the round. She doesn't want to be there, Laura Sanko. Caitlin Vieira did not want to be against the side of the octagon. She didn't say, hey, I'm going to relax you. here. 
I agree with you. I mean, I think you and I are aligned in how it in a perfect world should be interpreted. So, so I think there's a valuable exercise in making sort of, you know, situations that would never exist in reality, but they help us kind of hone in on what's mm -hmm. really being determined here. If you can imagine a fight where two fighters, uh, the, immediately from the bell, one fighter pushed the other fighter up against, not against the, the cage, not a single strike was thrown, right? That's it. Mm -hmm. Of course, the fighter pushing yep. the other fighter up against the cage is going to win. Control does matter. It is just very much secondary to damage. Now, I am how much damage was done, though? But how much damage was done? But how much damage was done? How much damage was done? And I and here's a thought, you know, when, when you see the word effective grappling, to me, effective grappling, a big component of effective grappling is controlling someone. But I'm telling you, and this is what I'm saying, you and I are aligned, but it's not how these judges are taught to look at the fights. And the fact that we don't know that and fighters don't know that and coaches for the large part don't know that and the fans certainly don't know that, that's the problem. It's not that we've got stupid judges, it's that the way that the rules are being instructed mm. to them is maybe not how DC or the other experts in this, in this industry think it should be done. And that to me is where you have an opportunity for, I don't want to say wholesale change, but shifts in thinking <laughs> because I'm with you. Well, but so you essentially not saying the judges aren't dumb. We're dumb. Because we don't know, because we don't understand what we're watching essentially whenever we've done it at the, done it at the highest level. Right? We know you what we're understand. watching. We don't know what they're watching. That's the difference. Yeah, but here's the difference, though, Laura. Here's the difference, Laura. You don't understand, right? They don't understand what it takes to get to that position, right? I, as an athlete that fought and spent a lot of time in that position, understand what it takes to get to that position. Understand how daunting it is to put someone against the octagon side, to be able to hold them against the octagon side. That is why. On so many occasions, you see people come into the clinch. Fighter A is uh, with their back to the center. Two seconds later, fighter B is with their back to the center because it is so difficult to control someone in that area of a fight. It's ta it's taxing. It's very it's exhausting and it's hard. But the reality is, when I watch the fight, and I'm like I'm watching and calling two times now because this wasn't just that one. It was the Anders fight uh, also. Against Jung, uh -huh. uh, J uh, J Jung, Jung Young Park. It was Jung Young uh -huh. Park versus Eric Anders. The same exact situation where it seemed as though Anders was landing, maybe not as much, but he was controlling all the, 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 the instances in which they came together. All the grappling. Grappling isn't limited to being on the ground. And I think that is exactly. where one of the biggest mistakes that is it, it, it's happening in the scoring. Now, it's hard, right? So... Laura, I used to go into the Apex. The judges would all say, hi, DC. Nobody speaks to me anymore because no. I'm so vocal about judging and how it's I not believe just you. that they are not. It's so many of us. But then you said you talked to John McCarthy yesterday who helped to yeah. write the rules. Was yes. he in agreement? Did he think that Holly Holm won the fight or did he think he lost the fight? She lost he was the fight. He, I will tell you this. He was in agreement that she won the fight. But here, here's what I really want you to take away. And this is what's so hard for us to accept. He and the two other experts I spoke to, I'm talking foremost experts, people who train judges, all three of them to a person said there was not an incorrect way to score the third mm -hmm. round. Mm. Let that okay. sink in. 
And that's hard to take because we yeah. want this to be black and white. We want there to be a winner and we want there to be a loser. But the reality is that not enough yep. there it was very acceptable to have Caitlin, Caitlin winning that round, and it was very acceptable to have Holly winning that round. There is not a incompetence in seeing that round, that round, either way. And that's mm-hmm. what's so hard for me to sit here mm-hmm. and go, but I want it to be definitive, right? Like I want to have it's someone never. be right, and I want to have someone be wrong. <laughs> but there is art to this, and that's why we don't have an algorithm yeah. judging these fights. It's you know we, we don't have an AI machine sitting somewhere calculating the various things. There is art and interpretation to this. And one thing that was pointed out to me that I thought was really interesting is, imagine you're a judge and you're the judge that is right next to them in that clinch. You can hear the little the little mm-hmm. grunts. You can hear the impact of those yeah, rabbit yeah. shots or the knees. And like you see that, oh, she maybe flinched a little bit when that knee landed. The other mm-hmm. two judges mm-hmm. are not sitting there. They're seeing that exchange they see from, from very the back. far away. Or you might see the back. Exactly. So, you know, when we see like, oh, how dare this one judge not see something the exact same way that the other, he's clearly incompetent. That's just ridiculous. So we got to quit saying that there are judges, or excuse me, there are rounds I can point to that are clearly wrong. Like they have been judged incorrectly, but this is not one yes. of them. Mm. You That's know, what's hard. When you look at that fight, And so many people are like up in arms. Everybody's upset. Everybody's disappointed. So then they start running to the one thing that so many for so long have been trying to get implemented into mixed martial arts. Open scoring. And I am not a component of that. Open scoring. Everybody starts to talk about open scoring when stuff like that happens. What is your thoughts on open scoring? Because I got to be honest. When I get after I give this floor to you and I come back, I'm going to tell you, Laura, I don't like it. And there are a number of reasons why I don't like it. But what are your thoughts on open scoring? Well, you beat me to the punch. I'm not a, I am not a proponent of it. I am one of the few people who have called a fair number of fights with open scoring because I've called fights for Invicta and for LFA when they were in Kansas. And Kansas is where they first implemented open scoring. And I think a couple other places have tried it since. Uh, I'm not a fan of it. And I can probably sit here and opine for too long about why. But one of the biggest factors is I I don't like I don't like the potential that a judge could be affected by the reaction of the audience. And that mm-hmm. is a very real thing. If you can imagine a packed T-Mobile Arena, right? They flash yeah. up the scores and all of a sudden you hear boos. You and heck, you saw rowdy people get in London, they probably would start throwing stuff. Imagine being a yeah. judge and by that time people are going to know which one you are. You, you cannot <sighs> You cannot put them in a position where, as human beings, they're going to be influenced by all the stuff that is surrounding them. That's one little aspect. Of but, do, it. but do you not? Do you I'll, not? But do you not think that they're a bit influenced a little bit anyway from the oohs and ahs? That's why at times, oh. from boxing all the way to mixed martial arts, when somebody's fighting at home, they're winning rounds that they clearly lose because there is a reaction to the things that they do opposed to what their opponent does because they're not the fan favorite. Oh, 100%. I just think it would be way worse in this instance because they would they would be judging something that had actually occurred. Like, okay, here's my mm. score. Oh, screw you, boo-boo. You know, the, the other stuff is a little bit more subjective because there's going to be probably be oohs and ahs, you know, on both sides. But th- this, to me, could potentially really influence the thinking of a judge. Secondarily, I understand why the athletes want it. I get it, and I if I was still competing... Mm. 
I probably would want it to. I get that side of it. But the reality is that mixed martial arts, especially in the UFC, it is an entertainment business. And I have... Won't be entertaining again, if you I start doing open fights. score, and I tell you that much. It's... it. <laughs> Call a main call a main event where the first three rounds are won by fighter A, and you're like, why are we even here for these last two rounds? You know, and of course there's a potential mm. for the other fighter to rally and mm. come back, but especially when you're calling women's fights and there's a lot more decisions, I tell you what, it does, in my opinion, take away from the entertainment factor the drama of having the scorecard read out. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear yeah. that, but this is an entertainment business. Thirdly. Yeah. Betting is a huge part of our ecosystem now. How on earth would open scoring mm -hmm. affect live betting? <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the things, right? So yesterday I was talking to Steve-O, right? Uh, and he was telling me some of these ideas for mixed martial arts. You know, he's a massive fan of mixed martial arts. He was telling me some of his ideas. One of his ideas is instead of open scoring, every round you flash the live odds. Because essentially the live odds is telling you who the betters, who the, the, the experts think is winning. So when you see that that live odd goes up to minus 1,000, oh, okay, you feel pretty good about that. Because the whole time on Saturday night, the live odds showed Holly Holm ahead. The whole time. After round three, after round, it just showed her ahead the entire time as the fight was going on. Hey, was Coach Pettineris' reactions a part of that? Maybe. You don't yeah. know exactly why it was that way. But... It showed and gave the fans an idea of who was winning that fight, even without them seeing the scorecards right away. For me personally, I think that it would add way too much safety to fighting because I know this. Every time I fought, especially when I was in, in, in control of a fight, knowing that I won the two rounds, that third round was always fairly safe. If I uh -huh. had definitive answer to whether or not I was up, done. I am going to take the most cautious approach to making sure I get my hand raised that I ever could. And I believe so many fighters would do exactly that. So regardless of if you have a, a fighter B behind two rounds to zero and wants to engage, all you're going to see is more takedown attempts. All you're going to see is more clinching. All you're going to see is more safety. And maybe, and that is where my biggest issue with open scoring comes about. I don't want to see... I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it. And you've called it, right? So you have an experience. Yeah. You experienced it. You experienced that idea of the safety, right? I have. And, and thank you for saying it because I think most fighters that want open scoring, I, I get why they do. I really I, I really do. And they say, well, no, I, I, I wouldn't take my foot off the gas. It would just cause the other guy to try that much harder. Well, to your point, when generally when one fighter is in control of the first two rounds, there's a pretty good chance he's going to be able to be in control of the third round if he wants to be and be able to play it very safe and clinch up and do more of the things that are not fan-friendly. Again, this is an entertainment sport. As much as we would love this to be a pure street fight, it's not. It's, it is scored round by round, and... You know, that just, that is, we have to accept that, I guess is my point. Yes, absolutely. And, and Laura, listen, it, it really does suck because it makes it seem as though there is an ax to grind with Ketlin Vieira, which there is not. There uh -huh. is no one that does not like Ketlin. She is a sweetheart of a person and a fantastic young fighter who interjects a new 
life into the top of the division because she's new, she's fresh, she's someone we have not seen fight against the top-ranked people in the world. We have seen Holly fight Amanda Nunes. Holly was scheduled to fight Juliana Pena. Ketlin wasn't. She's the one that has now won that fight, regardless of what your thought is. And it seems as though she would be the one to face the winner of Nunes and Pena too. What are your thoughts? Do you think that fight does that? Or do you believe that the controversy surrounding it kind of puts a damper on the biggest victory of this young lady's career? Well, I think it's both. I, I do think that there's a bit of a damper because, you know, here we are sitting about it. And, and she's got to go on Twitter and have all these people saying that they thought Holly won. And she's got to hear you say it and me say it. And the fact is, I'll go back to a lot of experts are telling me there there is no perfectly correct answer. So is it fine that Ketlin won? Ketlin Vieira won that fight? Yes, it is. According to the, the perfect judging criteria, the perfect way to look at that fight, that is an acceptable outcome. And Laura, so it was perfect. To her. From all the, for yeah. all the tips and purposes, they actually got it perfectly right. The way that they judged yes. the fight. Yes. 14 out of 15 <laughs> scores so agreed. It's great judging. <laughs> we just can't accept it. That's what we can't. We just, we just can't yeah. accept it. That's the problem. But she won. And she is the number one contender. And I do believe that she is ready and should face the winner of uh, – Pena and Nunes too, or excuse me, Pena and Nunes too. Yeah. I keep forgetting that yeah, they fought twice. Make sure we always put you, we got to make sure Pena's name goes first because Juliana going to get you. Juliana is not <laughs> one to hold her tongue if we go Nunes versus Pena, Pena too. She'll be Nunes. like, yo, I'm the champ. You better put my name first, DC. So Pena versus Nunes too. Look, she's ready. She's a well-rounded fighter. And I do believe that a part of uh, that uh, reaction is that we have seen Holly Holm for so long always win these types of fights. Like, Holly only lost prior to people who were a UFC champion or had been UFC champion. But now as she gets older, she takes on these younger fighters, these fighters that don't have the accolades of the past opponents, and she finds herself on the wrong end of a decision. But Ketlin Vieira is rightfully the number one contender. And Ketlin Vieira should find herself fighting for a UFC championship. And it's a, it's a credit to her and her team because... For a long time, we thought Ketlin had the potential. But in the biggest spots, in the spots like when she would fight a Holly Holm, she would get beat, right? The last time she was in what was perceived to be a number one contenders fight, she got beat. So now she finds herself in the position that she's wanted for so, so long, and she deserves it. She deserves the opportunity to go and chase that greatness. Now, Laura, we have started this new segment of our show, and it's called Step and Fly with Ryan Clark. Because Ryan Clark can dress. But, I mean, you don't look as good as me in that cowboy outfit up to the left. But Ryan Clark steps fly. So, Laura, we look at some of the best outfits from the weekend before and mixed martial arts. And to start okay. first, you're going to judge the outfits. That's one right there. Okay. Popsicle. Let's go. Cream on the inside, cream on the outside, ice cream paint. You know the song. <laughs> you know the song. I had my ice cream yes. paint job going on that one. But look at this. This, I mean, this skinny little floozy to my right, <laughs> to my left in the picture, shows up wearing the exact same outfit. Who does that? Who does that? Tries to steal my thunder. No, no, Pole. You will not. No, uh... I'm not going to judge my own outfit. You could, you judge me, DC. Tell me, tell me what you it, thought. I, I, I think it's, it's, I, it's, it's, it's <laughs> daring, you know. And when we take chances, we must be credited for taking the chance. It was very 
daring by Laura Senko <laughs> to wear that with you? the orange and the cream. <laughs> can I tell you what my husband said? Because I tried Please it on at home. <laughs> I, go, I go, all right. <laughs> I just, what are your thoughts? And he just goes, are you going to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace? <laughs> Oh, he said you look like evil Knievel. He's mean. Oh my God, he's mean. See, now I want to say that it looked better because he—I mean—he's mean. He said you look wow. Well, Laura, well done. Next person. I wore it anyway. Santiago Ponzinibbio, dude walked in looking smooth. Look at him. What you think? Oh my gosh! Can I tell you something? Every time I see him in these Mark Russell suits. I, I feel like he just needs to be in a cologne commercial. Like he's on a yacht right now, right? And there are beautiful women <laughs> surrounding him. Look at that. He's got three, but four buttons undone. The yeah, man has yeah. Four I mean, he's brave. That's he bold. He knows it. He knows it. Let me, tell you, it. Let me tell you something. These dudes, these dudes <laughs> from down, down South America are fresh and they got the yes. body for it. Right, dude, slim. He's long torso. He got all the, the the buttons undone at top. I like it. I like it. I like that. I like that they're putting effort into going to the fight. Yeah. You don't just show up in sweats and t-shirts anymore. You gotta look good if you're gonna main event a UFC fight night, whether it's on ESPN, ESPN Plus. And here's my boy, Michelle Pajeda, dressed in all black with the gold necklace. What you think? Look at that. He's like a Brazilian Johnny Cash with a little bit of like a chain, you know? I love this look for him. Yeah, and the yeah. shoes. Look at those shoes. I I hadn't seen him uh, in his arrival outfit, but I love it. I love it. He's, he's very dark you know, and mysterious and swarthy. And I, I would push the fire emoji on that one for sure. I, I, I like it. I like it. I like the accents. I like the gold accents. I like the gold on yeah. the belt. I like the gold necklace. I like the gold on the shoes. I think Michelle Pajeda, who has now won five fights in a row, is starting to get it. It's not just the fighting. He's starting to get it. I got to look the part. I got to be the part if I'm going to be considered a true player in this division. But when you look back to this fight, Laura, it was a tremendous fight, a barn burner, a very close fight. What did you take away from watching Pajeda beat the toughest opponent he's ever had in the biggest spot that he's ever had by winning over Santiago Ponzinibbio. What I love seeing from Michelle Pajeda is when we talk about the, his evolution all the time, we, I almost get sick of using that word with him, but it's hard not to. To me, it's now the confidence in his evolution that really draws my eye in because a lot of times when people start to make adjustments to their game, you can see flashes of them being unsure. Oh, should I should I go back to my old style? You know, during a difficult moment, should I, uh, you know, should I get a little crazy again? Get a little bit too open and too loose? But in that performance, Michelle Pajeda was dialed in the entire time, and he's now allowing his athleticism to speak for itself. Now we still mm -hmm. see little little glimpses of, you know, moments where like, oh my, he might do something crazy here, but that was a truly well-executed, <laughs> well-thought-out strategy, but it's great because now his opponents still have that thing in the back of their head like they know he could still whip out those those aces if he needs to. 
but he didn't need yeah. to in that fight. And it was just, it was a, it was a beautiful performance. But I mean, hats off to San- Santiago Ponzinibbio because that's the type of fight where you need a dance partner like him to have a performance yep. like that. And now Pich- Michelle Pajeda has the uh, second longest active win streak in the division. He ties, ties, uh, I'm going to forget who he's tied with, but second, act- second longest <laughs> active win streak in the division. So what that does is by having the Santiago Ponzinibbio to push you to that point, it really does tell you that you're ready to go into ranked competition. All these wins that Pajeda has, that was the first one he's ever had over a ranked guy as Ponzinibbio was like 14 or something before the fight. But when you think about Pajeda, he's 28 years old. And John Anik or Paul Felder, one of the guys said on Saturday, they go, two years ago, he would not have gotten this done. When stuff started going sideways, he would have packed it in a little bit. Just like, remember the Connolly fight? The Connolly uh-huh. fight seems like a lifetime ago now because he is such a different fighter. And, Laura, he's 28 years old and massive for the weight class. He's a tremendous Huge. fighter. And he showed now that he is preparing himself effectively enough to be in those big spots, to be in those moments where before he couldn't get through them and excel. He's not only winning, but he's excelling and truly making himself a player in the welterweight division, and I'm all for it. I've called a number of those fights at the Apex, and I cannot wait to see what the future holds for Michelle Pajeda. I just wonder if when he goes back out in front of the crowd, if he can stay within himself as much as he has inside the Apex. Now, Saturday night, one more thing happened. I'm just doing my job. Jolly old DC. Sam Hughes goes out there, wins her second fight in a row. (laughs) Looks tremendous. I mean, I am singing her praises. And she tells me, I remember the Tisha fight. I've been wanting to talk to you about it for a long time. You called me a quitter, DC. I'm not a quitter. I've had a chip on my shoulder for a few years now. I respect the hell out of you, but that hurt when you called me a quitter. I was like, I'm not a quitter, or I'm not no quitter. I mean, hey, you know, she went for that Louisiana grandma. I'm not, yeah, I ain't no quitter. That's what she said. So, so, so when you look at that, right, and Sam Hughes is holding on to that, for the opportunity. But the reality is I've spoken to her after uh, the last fight she won, I think. How, how, what do you, what do you make of that for Sam Hughes saying that? Because the reality is this, when I watch a fight and if you, you know me long enough now to know, if I say something, I probably believe it. So I said that maybe she quit in that fight because I think Tisha was, uh, uh, beating her up pretty good. And so if I said, hey, she quit, she probably quit. I'm not going to walk it back because someone <laughs> says it to me. But I'm not walking it back. But what do you think of fighters like trying to hold the commentators accountable? Oh, it's such a it's such a fine line. I'm 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 okay with it in certain instances. I think though that they don't fully understand, man, how how difficult it is to talk, I mean, especially in your case, what is it, six hours? you know, several times a month, every month of the year, there's a lot of stuff that gets said. And if people, you know, are going to have this attitude of nitpicking it apart, but I think what happened in that instance is her admiration for you. And I think everybody that talks to you, I you know, you see that in a lot of the interviews. That's the first thing they say is I just, I love you, DC. So to have someone as an (laughs) idol, she doesn't want to think that you think she's a quitter. And I think the difference is you don't think she's a quitter, you think no. she quit in a particular moment. And there's a big difference between quitting in an instance, which that whole fight was, that was super, 
crazy in short notice, for, if I'm remembering It was right. a horrible all, situation all for her to start. Yeah. yeah, it was a horrible situation, yeah. right? She takes that fight on short notice, fighting Tish Torres. I'll tell you this. I thought Elise, like, I thought Elise probably was like, okay, enough is enough on Saturday. So Elise probably was like, you know what? I'll live to fight another day. So maybe later down the line, Elise is going to tell me, hey, DC, you said I was a quitter on your show. But the reality is this, and I'll tell you this right now, Laura, these women are more men than the men in the UFC because the men in the UFC rather go talk to the media about some stuff I said opposed to coming to my face and saying it. Hats off to you, Sam, for telling me right up in my face and, and, and saying, you know what, dude, keep your mouth shut. I ain't no quitter. And then going out there and proving <laughs> That you ain't no quitter. So good job, Sam Hughes. That was tremendous. Laura, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time and your knowledge. But the reality is, you better next next time you tweet some stuff like that, you better text me before, before I find out <laughs> online that you're going up against me like that. I ain't messing I around. Go up. That's a whole other show to go <laughs> up against you. Shush. Hush. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Thank you. All right, guys, now it's time for me to list my top weight classes in the UFC. And you know that the UFC has some tremendous weights. And I was going to hit Ryan again. I was probably going to hit him with like six or seven. Uh, but he ain't here, right? So I'm going to let him live back in Louisiana. So at number five, that was a difficult one, right? Because I, I think that the, the women's strawweight division is very competitive and very tough. And I was going to put it at number five plus against Ryan, but instead I'm just going to start at number five, heavyweight. I think heavyweight's number five. Why? Because the champion is Francis Ngannou, and also with John Jones and Stipe Miocic moving into that same weight class, you have to consider it one of the better weight classes in the UFC because Jones is considered by many to be the greatest fighter of all time. Stipe is the greatest heavyweight of all time. So how do you have a weight class with both of them residing in and neither as the champion and not call it one of the top five in the UFC when you also got players like Tai Tuivasa and Cyril Gaon. Heavyweight's tremendous. At number four, I don't know who I put at number four. I'm, I'm just waiting for the graphic to pop up. There we go. At number four, middleweight. The only reason, the only reason middleweight's down as low as it is is because Edesanya has dominated it. You know what's crazy about the middleweight division because Anderson Silva was so dominant for so long? There's been very few middleweight champions in the entire history of the UFC. And we're kind of falling back into that same category. But again, you got Ed Asanya, you got Robert Whitaker, Jared Cannonier, and so many other tremendous fighters. Derek, uh, Derek Brunson, you got, uh, you got Marvin Vittori. You got so many really good fighters at middleweight. The problem is there's just been a very dominant champion. And when there's a dominant champion, it cannot be considered one of the high, the better weight classes, or at least in the top three, because parity does matter in the UFC. At number three, I got Bantamweight. Because, man, Aljamain Sterling is the champion. After what he went through in order to hold on to that belt for a year, get beat into the ground because P.O. Dion was beating him, and the fight was... If Aljamain Sterling had finished that fight against P.O. Dion and gotten beat, he may never have sniffed that championship again. But a year later, he's healthy, he's ready to go, dude's the world champion, and beats that same guy. But you can't forget about Piotr Jan. You can't forget about TJ Dillashaw, former champion. You cannot forget about those younger guys, too. Chito Vera, uh, uh, 
Sean O'Malley. And also you got the return of Henry Cejudo. How in the world could that weight class have all those people living in it and not be considered one of the better ones? At number two, featherweight. I understand. DC, Volkanovsky has been holding the title for a while. Well, Volkanovsky has an equal. Max Holloway and Volkanovsky are as even as it comes. And I know Max had the belt before. But to see those two and how they have separated themselves from the rest of the division, because you see what Max does to everyone else. You see what Volkanovsky does to everyone else. But when you got two dominant guys at the top like that, and then you have all these great contenders right under him, Calvin Cater, Josh Emmett, Yair Rodriguez, you also have uh, uh, Brian Ortega, and the list goes on and on and on. And you got so many young, talented fighters in the weight class, uh, Giga Chikadze and all these dudes. Tremendous, tremendous weight class with a ton of depth. And for a long time, it has been considered one of the best. And the number one weight class in the UFC today is the number one weight class that's been in the UFC for a while. And it's the lightweight division. Because Charles Oliveira has beaten the best that the division has to offer, are the ones that have been put in front of him. And for him to show that he was for so long just another guy on the roster and work his way up into that, through that shark tank, to get to that belt, to become the champion, shows you how deep of a division it has to be. Charles won so many fights before he even got to a title fight. But it's not just Charles Oliveira. You got those stars in Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler now, Tony Ferguson. And then you got a guy in that weight with the champion because guess what? The lightweight division has a champion. And his name is Charles Oliveira, just like he always said down in Arizona. There's a guy in that weight class that is like a minus 300 favorite over him. How in the world could this not be considered the best weight class in the UFC? Guys, go to ESPN.com. They just wrote an article. Which is the number one weight class in the UFC? ESPN.com's list was lightweight. Featherweight, Bantamweight, Women's Strawweight, and Welterweight. Look, we had the top three the same, right? But they threw that Strawweight division in there, which I had at six because they have Zhang Weili. You got Rose Namajunas, Carla Esparza. You got uh, Marina Rodriguez uh, amongst many. Now you're wanting on J-Check's back. So it, it's a very good weight class in itself. But go to ESPN.com. Check out their wrong list because my list is the right list. You don't get two GOATs in a weight class, and not consider that weight class one of the best weight classes in the division. Look, hated that Ryan wasn't here. Had a fun time speaking to Larsenko. Had a fun time making the list. But time for me to go. Guys, there is no show next week. But every single week, you can find episodes on Tuesday on ESPN MMA, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. So for Ryan Clark, not being here, but still in my heart, for Laura Senko, I am Daniel Cormier. And until next time, we're going to see you back at DC and RC. Peace.